The scripture today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right, how are we doing? We good? Are we missing an hour of sleep? I totally forgot. Went to bed too late. Now I'm tired. Cranky. I'm good now. Are we feeling all right? Um, Obviously today, fun subject. Slavery, right? Um, And I'm sure you've had a lot of fun conversations, especially if you um, can remember back to your college days, if you're in those right now. There's all kinds of people that love to talk about this, and I also love to talk about this. I would like to put some things in perspective. Um, I would like to get into some context. Today we're going to talk about um, submission in, 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 again, in the constructs of human society, whether they be just or unjust. Um, we're going to talk about how the early Christians responded to injustice in society. We're going to talk about the very subversive way that they sort of dealt with um, things like this, slavery. So, um, yeah, let's pray and let's dive into it. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you were doing for us. I ask that you would uh, be with us, that you would calm us, that you would give us your peace for a little while um, so that we can focus on you, that we can be present, that we can be here, and uh, so that we could study your word together. Find us together in in the truths of your word. Um, May they be life-changing and difficult and hard to hear. May they make us question ourselves and things that we hold to. And may we struggle with your words so that we can be made stronger. We love you, Father. In your name. Amen. First, I mean, I don't you didn't see it. I don't think you saw it. Here you go. Eh? Huh? Could be yours for the small price of here, I'm just gonna set it up like this. If I'm talking and, and you lose interest, you can stare at this and be like, how much money do I have in my sock drawer right now? And, and man, I mean, I mean, I would definitely take that so that the kids could have a playground. I would take that bullet so that the kids could have a playground. Okay, so anyways, here we go. We're going to start right here today. Um, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Um, okay, so <clears throat> in ancient Greek, there are two words for servants. Um, doloi and oketis. Douloi, Locatis. Again, I don't know why I want you to do this. I just do. Um, Douloi means general servant. This is the general word for slavery. No matter how you become a slave, no matter how long you've been a slave, no matter where you came from, um, or or uh, 
the circumstances around your enslavement. Douloi is just slave, general purpose word, to cover all forms of human ownership of other people. Um, the other word, oikates, oikates, sorry, um, is the word that is used in this passage. It is not a general word for slave. Oikates is a word that means, well, as you can see, domestic slave. That would be someone in society, um, someone living amongst the other people and working. Um, and so let me put some things in perspective for you. Um, this is what we think of when we think of slavery, and rightly so. This is not oikates. This is actually described in First Timothy. There's a word for slave trader that is used to describe a list of abominations, and a slave trader is an abomination to God. And the slave trader, the word that is used there in the Greek, literally means someone who kidnaps someone else, sells them against their will into slavery. That's what this is. That is not the word that is used here. Um, that is condemned outright um, and was not practiced ever among the Christians. Um, this would be what we count as wikites. This is an ancient Roman mosaic of several slaves. You have one offering fig leaves. You have some pouring wine. You have a man back here carrying olive oil. And then you have some dudes um, living it up. And so let me, let me put some stuff in perspective for you. There were over 60 million slaves in Rome. Think about that. 60 million slaves. At different points in the history of Rome, several times there were more slaves than freedmen. More slaves than non-slaves. Um, in fact, any work, any and all work that was done, if somebody was working, they were a slave. If you were not a slave, you did not work at all. Um, the general consensus was that there was two classes. There was a ruling class, sort of a citizen ruling class, and then there was a non-ruling class, a service class, as we call them. Um, and so any work from cooking and cleaning to being a doctor or a lawyer, a scholar, oftentimes a teacher, uh, or a scribe would be a slave. If you were working, you were a slave. Um, in the Roman mindset, this is how things should be. And this is how it is described throughout history. Um, <clears throat> there were so many slaves in Rome that it was declared by several times by the Caesars that the slaves actually can't wear insignia or clothing that shows that they are a slave. The fear was that one day all the slaves would wake up and put on the same color or the same tunic and they would all go out in public and start the day and they would realize just how many of them there are and they would overthrow Rome. And so they were not allowed to really go out and show that they were a slave. Um, <clears throat> not all the time, some of the time. Um, so there were only two classes in Rome, a ruling class and a service class. No. So, so the question is, where did all these slaves come from? How did that many people end up in slavery? It's uh, a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, there, are, there, there, there are two different ways you could become a slave. There was voluntary slavery, and then there was involuntary slavery. Voluntary slavery, you kind of ask, why would anyone ever willingly become a slave? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one, trying to find an easier life than you had as a free man. Uh, maybe things weren't going well. You couldn't feed your family. You were 
starving. Um, things just were not working out. You could sell yourself into slavery um, and be taken care of. Um, another way was trying to secure a certain job. Um, there is a man, we have, we have thousands of letters from ancient Roman history. There's one of them from a man named Epictetus who wrote about this, um, and he said that he wanted, uh, he became a slave in order to secure the post of chief accountant of a big private household with the luck that he would later become a freedman procurator in the same post and finish up a rich citizen with freeborn children. His dream was, I'm going to sell myself into slavery so that when I, when my contract is up and I'm no longer a slave, I will be rich and free and I can keep my position. Then I can have a wife and children and the children that are born will be mine. Because as a slave, any children that are born belong to your master. You are property. Um, trying to climb the social ladder, people would become slaves to do that. Um, to gain citizenship. If you were a slave for, I think it was seven or ten years, you had the right to earn Roman citizenship. Anyone could move in, sell themselves into slavery, and then sort of graduate from that into Roman citizenship. Um, to procure a wife. We see this in the book of Genesis. We have Jacob working for Laban for seven years to get a wife, another seven years to get another wife, because um, the first one wasn't really what he got. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Payday. Not, not the right paycheck. Um, so... There were also involuntary ways of becoming slaves. If you were a citizen of a city that Rome wanted, Rome wanted you to become a Roman city. They would come and they would ask you nicely, hey, want to become a Roman city? And you would say, sure. Because if you did, you would uh, gain all the benefits of Roman citizenship. But if you said, uh-uh, no, we like it the way things are, Rome would crush you and take you into slavery. So you had like this choice. But a lot of people said, no, this is our land. This is our way of life. And they fought back and they ended up in slavery. Um, lack of mental capacity to live on your own. Um, if you were mentally handicapped or physically handicapped in any way, um, you, would be, you would become a slave. Um, there was not a system set up to support and feed people who could not live on their own. So the only form of, I guess, welfare that they had was selling you into slavery. Now... Um, so to assume that all the slaves were miserable because they were slaves would actually be wrong. There was lots and lots and lots of them that were perfectly content being a slave. That being said, that doesn't make it okay. The mindset of ancient Rome was just as corrupt as the mindsets of any government that has ever allowed slavery to exist. As a matter of fact, we have the writings of Aristotle. and He writes this, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Um, they were an empire that didn't honor human beings. They honored people for the position that they held, not because they were human. There are still places in the world today that believe like this. Uh, my brother is a missionary in Indonesia, um, it is an Islamic country, um, and Christian missionary work is not allowed to happen in Islamic countries, except for the fact that they don't view the people in the West, jungles of West Papua as human beings. And so they say, oh, you're a Christian, you want to go do missions work and minister, minister to animals? Go ahead. So they let my brother and his family go into the deep jungles of West Papua and find these indigenous people groups that have lived there for thousands of years, um, and bring them all kinds of help. And 
the government doesn't care because it doesn't view them as people. And so this has been the case throughout history. There has always been governments that have looked at certain people groups and minorities and um, ethnic peoples as not as good, not human, not to be honored. And there's a class to be honored, and there's a class to be dishonored and serve the others. In the Christian church, it was not okay. So this is the world that the book of Peter was written into. And so you will meet skeptics who will say things like, the early church condoned slavery. The facts are, most of the early church were slaves. And so it's not like they were on the outside saying, oh, that doesn't affect us. We actually benefit from that, so we're going to let it go. It's not the truth at all. The vast majority of, of Peter's audience would have been slaves. The vast majority of Paul's audience probably would have been slaves as well. Um, as we read through church history, we read some fascinating things about the church. We know, for instance, that it was uh, quite common for a church, um, a church gathering to be attended by a slave and his master sitting side by side, worshiping Jesus together. It was not uncommon for a slave to be the pastor of a church in which his master was the, a member of the congregation, completely taking the relationship and flipping it on its head in the church. It was not uncommon um, for some of the martyrs that we read to have been slaves. Um, there was a, the, one of the first bishops of Rome. His name was Callistus, a very high-ranking member of the early church was a slave. Um, here's an ancient relief of two women. On the left, we have Perpetua. On the, left, on the right, we have Felicitas. If you know their story, it's tragic. Um, Perpetua was a well-known, prominent aristocrat who was a, a wife and a mother, had a baby she was nursing, and she was arrested and thrown in prison for her faith in Christ and for preaching the gospel and teaching it alongside of a slave, Felicitas. And they both were martyred, died side by side as equals because in the church, they were equals. If you read the writings of Paul, Paul says, in the church, when you come into the church, there is no longer male nor female. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer Roman. Greek, barbarian, Scythian. There is no social status. There is no um, separating ourselves by race or gender. We are equals. We are all equally looked at by God and desperately loved by him. And so it was not at all uncommon when you walked into the church for the relationship that existed outside the doors to be completely null and void. It was this subversive society in the midst of an oppressive society that somehow flourished. And so let's go to verse, let's finish what we were reading here in verse 18 and read right through it. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he's speaking to their public life. And last week we read, he's talking about human creations. There are all kinds of human creations in society. All sorts of governments, all sorts of relationships. And so he says, when you are out there, I, I want you to do your part. I want you to be a part of society. 
but I want you to do it differently. He says, I want you to serve your master from a whole different place. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So what's happening here is he's speaking about equality. What Jesus did for us is treated us in a way that was not dependent upon our spiritual performance or moral performance. God blesses us and offers us grace no matter what. And so he says, Christians who are slaves in this room, I want you to serve everyone equally, not depending upon their spiritual performance, not depending on their treatment of you. And so a lot of skeptics today say, well, why didn't the early apostles just stand up and say, emancipation, everyone's free. I want you to rise up and not be slaves anymore because the Bible's against it. Uh, This would have been the greatest loss of life in the Roman Empire up until that time if this had been the proclamation. Can you imagine 60 million people suddenly being told you're free and suddenly being told, rise up and overthrow? This would have not been the aim and goal of Christianity. Christianity is after hearts and minds. When you want to win hearts and minds, you don't stand up and push, you pull. You get out in front and you say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to act this way. It's going to be subversive. It's going to change people's hearts. They're not going to be able to look at you the same way. Um, the slaughter that would have happened through a proclamation of emancipation would have been different. So Christians instead said, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna treat the heart, not the outside. Now, um, Peter has been writing since the beginning of this book about the difference between living from the flesh and living from the spirit. He calls living from the spirit being born again. You're plugged into something different. You don't react from the flesh. Now, we tend to like when people react from the flesh. We, um, any Quentin Tarantino flick will tell you this. We like it when, when the underdog rises up and destroys the oppressive guy. Um, and Glorious Bastards, and, then, and, and what is the Django Unchained? We, we, we like these stories. We're like, yes, that's justice. Um, we like it when we read like a couple years ago about the flight attendant who was being treated unfairly, went to the back of the plane. They weren't flying, by the way. Went to the back of the plane, pulled the hatch, pushed it open, said some insulting things on the speaker, and said, Seacrest out, and drops it and jumps down a slide. And we're like, yeah, way to go, way to get him. Tell him off. We, 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 there's something in us that says, yeah, rise up, overthrow him, give him a taste of their own medicine, teach him who's boss. We oftentimes encourage people to go in and quit their job in a fashion that is getting up on top of the table and telling off everyone in the entire office building, <laughs> kicking over a pitcher of water, smashing a mug, and walking out the door. I quit. And everyone's like, yeah, good job, man, high five. Um, this is acting from the flesh. I assure you, there is nothing in scriptures that ever condones that type of behavior. Nothing. I don't know if you realize this. There is nothing in scriptures that says, at which point, tell them off. (laughs) Nothing. Peter says that is the definition of acting from the flesh. The way... The person who is born again, not living from the flesh, but living from the spirit, is to act is completely different. Because the way of grace is not the way of humanity, typically. Um, And so let's read a little farther. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so people were coming to Peter and saying, look, um, I'm a slave and, and I'm not being treated fairly. I've responded with love. It's not going well. I, I'm trying to work for uh, my master's favor. I, I want to make him happy. I want him to, um, I want to I honor him. I don't want to dishonor him. He's a person. I want to honor everybody. And this is one of the people I need to honor. And so I want to honor him, but he's just not treating me fair. He's not treating me right. And so Peter tells a story. He talks about Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now, um, because Christ also suffered for you. What he's saying is, there was a time when, when, when we did this to Christ, and he suffered, suffered for us. He, he submitted himself under us and said, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to wash your feet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you and regard you as higher than myself. And it was The God of the universe did this for you. And, and he said, I'm, I'm going to die the death that you deserve. I'm going to take your sin upon myself. It's exactly the same description of kind of the work of slaves. And he's saying, and, and he suffered that under your sort of tyrannical rule of God. He suffered that for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He says, and what Jesus did, you are to do. Now, the word example here is a fascinating word. Love this word. Um, it is the Greek word hupogramos. All right, where do you go? Uh, hupo means under. Gramos is, is our word for, it's where we get our word grammar. It means words, writing words. Um, it's not just a word that means example. It's actually a device. Um, it, here's a modern reconstruction of it. It looks like this. We have a, apparently a stylus. Um, and you have a, sort of a wood sort of kind of book kind of thing, and there's a, there's a thin coat of wax. And it was used for several things. It was, I guess it was ancient text messaging. They were rewritable. You could like, heat them up and like, make them flat, and you could write messages and close them and send them off to people. But the way that this word is being used is in, in its, these devices would also be used to teach writing to children, to young students who were learning the trade languages. And so they would take the piece of wood, the teacher would write a sentence or two, cover it with a thin coat of wax, the student would take the pen, and he would practice writing like the teacher. And he would practice, and he would practice, and he would practice. And at first, you know, we've all done this. It's the same as when the, peop- when, when the teacher, when you're a kid, hands you uh, a copy of cursive writing and you lay a thin uh, sort of see-through paper over it and you practice writing. At first, it's really bad and it's just adorable. And you're doing your best you can, but it just doesn't look anything like what the teacher wrote. And you keep doing this over and over and over and over. After a while, you're doing this. You get really good at it. And eventually, you can just take the paper out underneath. You can get a fresh, clean piece of paper and you can just write exactly the way the teacher did, exactly the way the master did, and you can write like him. And, uh, okay, so here's, a, here's an ancient Roman one that we have. Same thing. With the writing still on it. And so what he is saying here is, I know it's difficult, but you have a teacher who has laid out the tracing paper before you, and he's just asking you to, to, to try. Do the best you can. Try to trace. Write something. Do it. And as you do, it's not going to go well at first. 
It's going to be, it's, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very hard to, to do what Jesus did. You want, it's going to take a lot of practice. It takes discipline. You almost have to be a disciple, which means disciplined one. You need to practice and practice and practice. But as you practice, you will find it gets easier and easier. And you will start to see a change in your actions. You will start to eventually see that I'm, I'm writing like Jesus. I'm becoming like Jesus. It's hard work. It's difficult. But he says it's important. So look at the next verse with me. Verse 22 through 24. Because <clears throat> he would be describing some of the things. It's almost like someone came to him and said, Look, I was reviled. I've done nothing wrong, but I'm reviled and I'm suffering. And I don't know what to do. He says, Jesus is your example. You're going to do what he did. So what did he do? <clears throat> he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he, was, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was beaten, he didn't stand up and threaten. You better not do that again. He didn't stand up and tell him off. He did something that is not at all something that we would think of. It is not second nature for us to return sin with love. It is very hard to return sin with love. But there's something fascinating here, verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. The point is, God did this so that you can learn to die to sin. If, if I'm sin and you're, you're dead, there's nothing I can do to hurt you. Because again, you're dead. And so I could, I guess, kick you and hurt, I don't know, I, I, I could hurt you, but I can't hurt you because you're dead. And so as weird as that sounds, if you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin. It doesn't affect you. You're not reacting from the Spirit. People sin against you. And you're not a reactive presence. You don't stand up and hit back. You don't stand up and tell them off and jump down the slide out of the back of the airplane. You don't do it. You don't fire off a terrible email on your way out the door that lays waste to everyone around you. You instead, the sin that they have done against you, as Christ did, you take it upon yourself. And you respond in a way that is like Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Look at his example. And try writing that and see what happens. Eventually you will find, if you practice enough, the Word becomes flesh in you. The Word, just reading it, you read it a lot and, and, and you want to try to practice it, but eventually if you practice enough, you start finding, yeah, it's second nature. It's, it's who I am now. It's, it's, I can't help but react this way. It's second nature. The Word has become flesh. And so Jesus says, follow me. As you follow me, you will become like me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not a mental ascension to any list and set of beliefs. It's a complete mindset. It's, it's all of the things that you are doing in life, the place you react from, your mindset, you have, you have taken it off the flesh and you've plugged it into the Spirit. And you said, I'm going to react like Jesus did. I have access to that power and I'm going to do that. Um, <clears throat> I have seen this work. It's very difficult. It is very hard to respond to somebody's anger 
and criticism with grace and a smile and love. But when you do it, I have found most of the time it changes people. They look at you differently. They realize that you're not the jerk they thought you were. That maybe there was a misunderstanding. I have responded to very long emails with, you know what, you're right, I'm so sorry. Only to receive a reply back, you know what, I'm a jerk, ignore everything I said. (laughs) That happens on many occasions. To take someone else's sin upon yourself and let it tarnish your image sounds a lot like something Jesus would do. I always have to go back to the words of Richard Foster when talking about submission. He writes this, Outwardly we can do what people ask and inwardly be in rebellion against them. Hold on. It is possible in human relations, in your job or whatever, to serve someone without submitting to them. It is. You ever like, yes, sir, and you go do it? Um, Submission is about the mindset. Submission is not about action. Submission is a spiritual discipline that has to do with you loving the other person and being okay with the situation that you are in because there is a God who is in control who loves you. And so we keep reading, "This, this concern for a spirit of consideration towards others pervades the entire New Testament. The Old Covenant stipulated that we must not murder. Jesus, however, stressed that the real issue was the inner spirit of murder with which we view people. In the matter of submission, the same is true. The real issue is the spirit of consideration and respect we have for each other. That is the issue. That's what this is about. Think about it like this. He's writing to a slave. He says, Dear slave, you are being coerced to serve. But what if you loved your master from the depths of your soul and you served them because you wanted to? The same way that you serve your neighbor, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. If you serve all of them, you are no longer a slave. Maybe on the outside, but what does that matter? You don't serve because you have to. You serve because you want to. You are free. You are free of the bondages of the flesh that tell you, no, you must submit and I will beat you into submission if you don't. There's no reason to beat you into submission. You're like, I want what is best for you. I I am here to serve. Jesus is the example of that. And when we act this way, we find freedom because in submission, we're finally free to value people that we could not value before. That boss that you hate, Jesus wants to free you from that hate and give you the freedom of finding value in that person that you were incapable of finding value for. You were not free before because you were incapable of finding value in that person. But now you are free. You're free to not hate them. You're free. You have a choice. For the first time, you can value them as a person. You can love them unconditionally. You never could do that before. You are free of the tyranny of, of them withholding love from you, and you no longer need them to love you and appreciate you, you can love them despite what they do to you. This is the subversive nature of the gospel. And this is what made the church such a unique organization within the confines of the evil Roman Empire. When you submit to people, 
those around you. You are free to rejoice in their successes. You feel genuine sorrow at their failures. Um, it's really, it's of little consequence whether or not their plans succeed, which maybe crushes your plans. It's of little consequence. You rejoice in their success. And this is very difficult. This is what Jesus did. And he says, and he is the hoopogramos, the, 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 the tracing slates. And so as you trace and as you try these things, you're not going to like it. It's going to be very hard. It's going to be awkward. It's going to hurt a little bit. You're gonna, it's going to be uncomfortable. But after a while, you're going to get really good at it, and you're going to start seeing the change. And look at the next verse. Let's go to verse, uh, oh, hold on, right here. By his wounds, you have been healed. So because of Jesus and his suffering, you actually find healing. And then we get to verse 25. For you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus went through everything he did so that you could find freedom, so that you could find healing. He submitted to you. He served you. Even when we tried to coerce him at at the threat of a sword and a spear, and we were arresting him in the garden, he's like, there's no need for any of that. I would have gone anyways. I'm here to serve you guys, and the best way I can serve you right now is to die. And so we get into our life and we say, well, this person is just not treating me justly. And I don't know what to do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him what I really think about him. And Peter kind of writes and says, man, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't react that way? When he submitted to you? When you treated him that way? I mean, that person probably didn't do anything worse to you than you've done to Jesus. And Jesus did and continues to respond in a way that fights for your healing, not your destruction not the tarnishing of your reputation and your heart. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to live. He wants you to have purpose and to feel love. Do you want any of those things for that person? Do you want them to know love? And so the challenge he has for us is to just simply trace Jesus. It's, spiritual disciplines are, are very difficult because they are awkward, because they are new, because we have to use muscles we've never used before. And the first time you do this, it's very, very, very hard to do. You won't be good at it. You're not going to like it. But as you keep practicing and living like Jesus, you will find that the healing that Jesus brought into your life, you can actually bring into the lives of others. It has to do with your response. It has to do with how much you love people, whether you value them despite what they've done. And so, I don't know what all of this means for for you here. I imagine there's a lot of you who are dealing with difficult people. I want to ask you how Jesus responds to you when you are difficult. And I want to encourage you, take a piece of paper, lay it right over that, and just start writing. Just do it. Just try. Try it. Do your best. You might fail. It's okay. Grace. Grace and peace. And so our communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and, uh, and prepare as we um, get ready to take communion today. And maybe when we're taking communion today, we can focus on the ways that we have failed, the ways that we haven't, that we haven't lived a model of Christ-likeness at all. And we can ask for the wisdom and the strength. Maybe there's a situation literally right now, and you're like, Tommy's reading my mail, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with this. Try something different. Try not responding from the flesh. If you are born again, you are plugged into something different. You can respond from the Spirit. I urge you to try it.
And so we take communion every time we get together. Um, as a church, we want to remember what Jesus did for us every moment of our lives and every time we gather because he is the one that's brought us together. We are the body of Christ. And so we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the, in the wine, and we take it down inside of us and we say, God, as I take the gospel, the representative of the, 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 the blood and the wine, the, the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, um, I ask that you would let your gospel touch the parts of my life that need to be touched, that have yet to be touched. Help us to live differently. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you are doing for us. You are a good, holy, wonderful God. Make us like you. Fashion us in your image. Work towards our sanctification. Prompt us to get up and move forward. Not stay where we are. Prompt us to not respond from the flesh. Even when we are in the midst of unjust uh, constructs of society. Let us know that healing sometimes takes a long time, but we can be instruments of healing. And that our simple actions every day will positively affect the future generations that will come after us. And so let us fight for justice, but let us do it in a way that is loving without using our freedom, as Peter says, as a cover-up for injustice. We love you. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.